Well, welcome to um, Grant's Radio. My name is Jim Grant, and with me is the deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Good morning, Evan. Good morning. Ladies and gentlemen, we are coming to you on the morning after the night before. Last night was one of the Tuesdays in which we publish an issue of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. This little miracle happens every other week without fail, with the exception of a few vacation weeks. And the Wednesday after the Tuesday is normally a day for uh, rest, relaxation, except we are up bright and early to bring you uh, some thoughts about what we wrote about and what we're thinking about. But first, but first, a, a word from your sponsor, who happens to be me. I'm the darn sponsor. And I want to tell you in about 38 seconds why you must be at the Plaza Hotel on Wednesday, March 15th for the Spring Grants Conference. First and foremost, it's kind of an intellectual Olympics. It is a -a chock-a-block full of great speakers enunciating fabulous ideas in the most engaging way. Who is coming? Well, Gilchrist Berg, uh, talking about what I've learned. He's got a storied career in the hedge fund business. Jack Bogle, the great Jack Bogle of Vanguard, is debating Stephen Bregman on... um, how the government ought to regulate investment decisions. We have Peter Fisher, an alumnus of the Fed. We have Rob Arnott, one of the great thinkers about markets. Paul Isaac, Ed Wackenheim, he's coming with his book. Matt Clody, Chuck Royce, Kevin Duffy, Jim Latinsky, Felix Fry. I mean, Felix Fry. It's going to be astounding with a more than serviceable lunch and weapons grade networking. I, I can't imagine you not being there. So please do log on to the site and come. And this concludes a word from our sponsor, who was, as I mentioned, me. So, Evan, um, you told me this morning as I walked in that there is 100% agreement on what the Fed is going to do one week from today, March 15th. What are they going to do? The market bets the Fed is going to hike 25 uh, basis points to between uh, 75 uh, basis points to 1%. It's, well, it's a sure thing now, apparently. Well, th- there's there's a, a, a kind of a, you get a probability reading on what the Fed's going to do, right? Somebody surveys analysts or anyway, they come up with a percent likelihood of a certain Fed action, right? And ordinarily it's 60-40 or 70-30 or sometimes when there's great certainty, it's 95-5, but never in my experience or rarely 100%. What could this signify? I mean, when everyone agrees on something, it's not necessarily wrong, but one is invited to bet that way, correct? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, some of the smartest uh, traders I know when they saw that um, uh, Hillary's chance... Let's of- not get into politics, Evan. <laughs> oh, go ahead. When Hillary's chance to win was uh, priced in at 100% of the markets, they didn't necessarily think Trump was going to win. They just thought that the bet on Trump was uh, underpriced in the market and they changed their bets and they tended made a lot of money on November 9th. Well, um, if the Fed um, does do uh, what everyone says it will do, and indeed must do, what could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong? A few things. Well, first and foremost, there's a number of countries around the world that have already been kind of debilitated by currency flight. Some we've written about, Turkey, Mexico, and China. And if the Fed raises this time and raises an additional two times like the market's priced in, that could lead to a surge in the dollar and could lead to uh, a surge of capital outflows from those countries. And while the Fed's remit does end in the 50 states, uh, 44% of the sales from the S&P 500 are actually derived uh, internationally. Well, the dollar is, uh, is America's currency, but also the world is kind of the Coca-Cola of monetary brands. And uh, uh, the Fed's remit might stop at the water's edge, but certainly the dollar's role in the world does not stop uh, outside the 50 states. So one of the things that we were talking about that uh, you and I were writing about um, is the energy markets. 
And um, the energy markets are a bundle of paradox in that, that rhetorically at least, and indeed through visible positioning, everyone seems to be bullish, right? Absolutely. Right. So um, tell us, if you would, please, uh, every good lawyer, every good analyst can argue both sides of a case. And I'm going to invite you, Evan Lorenz, the, the deputy editor of grants, uh, to tell us in summary form uh, the bull case for oil and the bear case. Please proceed, Evan. Well, starting with the bear case, uh, not only are traders near a net record speculative long in oil futures right now, but the world's awash in oil. The U.S. is sitting on record inventories. Uh, inventories are growing every week. And not only are inventories bulging in the U.S., but they're also bulging in parts of the world that are less well measured. Uh, on the flip side, as oil crashed from $107 in June of 2014 to a low of like $26 in February of last year, spending on exploration and development just crashed. And in fact, new oil discoveries in 2015 were the lowest since 1952. Let's stop there for one second. Could you please uh, repeat that year? 1952. <laughs> And not only were oil discoveries bad in 2015, but it looks like they're going to be worse in 2016, which means 2016 is going to be worse than 1952. Now, th this doesn't immediately lead to a, a decline in oil production. Um, large projects that are discovered take like five to you know eight years to actually go online. So large projects going online in, uh, in 2017 were discovered somewhere between you know, 20, 2010 and 2012, which were okay years for oil exploration and development. But this does mean that there is going to be a fall off in large new projects starting in 2018, 2019, 2020, and that we need higher prices and higher spending by oil companies to actually replenish these reserves, or they just mechanically fall as they pump oil out of the ground. Well, people would uh, retort, and indeed they do retort, that uh, you're forgetting shale. Shale doesn't require anything like five to eight years. It is more accessible and uh, more prolific, certainly for this country. Now, it won't shale oil likely tip the balance to the bearish side? Um, no, not at least in the long term. So, so shale is prolific. Uh, it's easy to drill. Uh, you, if you commit capital for, to, for others, for others, for you and me, I, 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 I for one would be a be at a loss. Not, not for us, but if Exxon wanted to uh, to drill a well, they could Correct. commit capital today, right. and, and within like six months, they can actually start getting oil out of the ground, which is just... And they can, they can do it at very low prices, profitably. You know? At very low prices. A, a lot of the big oil companies now are saying they can get double-digit returns at $40 oil in the prolific Permian Basin that's uh, in Texas and New Mexico. Mm. The, the unfortunate thing is part of the, the, the prolific economics that they're seeing today are the result of sharp deflation in oil service uh, prices in the U.S. As... Um, Spending on CapEx cratered in 2015 and 2016. Um, service companies cut their prices. Uh, a drilling wig that went for $30,000 a day went, dropped to $15,000 a day. The problem now is as um, these companies are increasing their spending, and according to Simmons & Co., uh, oil companies in the U.S. have committed to increase CapEx by 60% year over year in uh, 2017. These service companies are having to ramp up production, bring out idle machinery that have been sitting idle for two years and, you know, spend CapEx to get it up to par, rehiring crews at a time where the, the economy is pretty much at full employment. That's not so easy to do. Not you so know, easy. I, I heard that, um, uh, that in one of the uh, shale towns in Texas, that the price of a hotel, motel room, days in quality motel room, had been $25 or $50 or $30 or something for, for years during uh, the, the bear a market portion of the oil cycle, and now it's uh, it's back to 100, and you can't get in there. 
not just that, um, Bloomberg had a story yesterday saying that as these oil service companies are trying to rehire roughnecks, they're offering salaries of $80,000 and above for starting positions. But in Midland, Texas, they're having trouble finding people to fill these relatively well-paying jobs. Yeah. It, it's not so easy to ramp up. Well, you know, that kind of leads one to the concept of inflation, which is uh, an ever so important idea uh, for people in the credit markets, especially, especially in this time of, of little midget interest rates. I mean, if you are earning two and a half percent a year on a piece of paper that promises to return your principal in 10 years, you are just breaking even as inflation is now measured. But um, so the, the government measures inflation in uh, in ways that might be characterized as kind of analog. It sends out uh, uh, price scouts. And uh, our man Harrison Waddell actually followed one uh, uh, one morning recently in his rounds in New York City, stopping at a, at a vet's office and at a supermarket. So the price scouts uh, uh, take the measure of things as these items appear on the shelves, and they report back to headquarters. And headquarters sums up the prices and it makes adjustments for seasonality. It makes adjustments for the propensity of consumers to substitute one item for another. It makes adjustments for perceived quality changes. And uh, at the end of uh, a somewhat intricate process of mathematical jiggering, to use a technical word, it comes up with a CPI. CPI comes out in two digits. We round it to one to the right of the decimal point. Perhaps it ought not to be reported to the right of the decimal point at all, and that is a CPI, and so too with the PCE, which the Fed favors. You know, Evan, but there is another uh, another source of, uh, of measurement on inflation, and that is called the Billion Prices Project. It came out of MIT some years ago, and the Billion Prices Project doesn't send out uh, scouts to supermarkets. It scrapes prices off the web. It scrapes them off to the tune of like one billion times a day. It's quite an extraordinary technical feat. And uh, uh, I don't know, sh should, should I divulge uh, in this public forum what we have divined of the recent readings of the billion prices? I, I think I will. I'm feeling that generous. So for the month of February, the Billion Prices Project, in its deep dive into web-based merchandising, finds that prices year over year rose by 3.6%, 3.6%, which is kind of a 70-ish number, right? Well, last time, the CPI registered a rate of rise in excess of 2 point something percent was in 2011. Uh, so um, things are getting kind of interesting in the credit markets. Uh, what if, against the uh, the received wisdom of the theory that inflation in this day and age is impossible. What if inflation made an unscripted appearance? If it were as high as a 3% number, that would sink every single nominal yield in the treasury yield curve uh, into a negative real yield situation. I guess maybe the 30 years are slightly over three. Um, but nonetheless, we are looking at a very, very great sea change in how people will perceive fixed income securities, uh, which have been on the receiving end of 35 years of bull market action. Uh, it's quite a moment in credit. And uh, oh, another advertisement. And to, uh, <laughs> to understand exactly what's going, you must subscribe to grants. Uh, okay, that'll conclude that advertisement. Um, you know, we, Evan, we looked at credit this time, uh, as we always do, almost every issue uh, deals with it in some form. 
And what we looked at in particular was the risk-reward proposition offered today in various corporate and sovereign debt obligations. And I've got to say it, they're, they're kind of unappealing. Is that, I'm asking you a leading question, is that your view as well, my employee? <laughs> yeah, we found a lot of risk and very little reward. Um, spreads are near lows. Um, the market seems pretty bullish that uh, America's going to be made great again and that nothing's going to go wrong. Yes. Well, uh, let's talk about another great country, which is France. France is a pretty fine member of the first world, upstanding, um, and a powerhouse in, uh, in culture and, uh, and literature and on and on in that vein. Uh, also, it is no slouch in the issuance of debt. France has a lot of sovereign debt. And um, some of this debt, for example, the 10-year oat, as it's known, the 10-year sovereign French note is oat note is priced to yield something less than one lonely percentage point to maturity. 93 basis points at last look. 93 basis points for 10 years in France, payable in the euro, except Evan Lorenz, except Marine Le Pen campaigning hard for the presidency, um, has promised that if elected, she and her party will institute changes that will uh, peel France off from the euro project and allow her and her majority, she hopes, in uh, the French parliament to re-denominate French sovereign debt in a not-now-existent French franc. So this is kind of an existential threat to, uh, to the debt holders, is it not? It is. And the perverse thing is if you look at the Swiss National Bank or the uh, Central Bank of Denmark, they're actually struggling to maintain their pegs to the euro because so much money is fleeing out of the eurozone and into these countries which are perceived as more safe. Yet people are willing to take money out of the euro, but they're not willing to sell the bonds that yield almost nothing and have this huge embedded risk. Well, in because you know, I think if you're a professional investor in France, you have to live with uh, uh, the state of... of uh, European central bank-induced rigor mortis, the bond market in Europe, is essentially a, an arm of the European political project, right? So Mario Drago, Draghi buys these securities without consideration of value. So if you're running money in France, you see that the French uh, 10 years is yielding 93 basis points and the uh, German Bund is yielding about 93 basis points less. Wow, what a fabulous relative bargain. Or you... Um, Listen to the polls. You've heard of these polls, haven't you? They, they poll voters and they voters tell you what they're going to do. And the polls say that Marine Le Pen will not win. She will certainly not win the second round. That is pretty much determined. Just like uh, Brexit wasn't going to happen and Hillary Clinton was going <laughs> exactly, to win. Exactly, exactly. And that the Fed is going to raise uh, 25 basis points on March 15th. That is also a certainty. So... Um, I don't know, Evan, I think that uh, we have touched many bases, uh, not least the base of certainty. Um, and uncertainty, I th hope you'll agree, we at Grant's Interest Rate Observer are bearish. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, and uh, Grant's Radio will be coming at you again before you know it. <laughs>